everybody, and welcome to the 263rd episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that's spiraling through time looking for fresh metadata. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host this week is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin' on Twitter, and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, James. Good evening, everybody. Glad to be back in the saddle and uh, not feel like someone's blowing a balloon up inside of my head. Uh, Also looking forward to sharing some valuable information with everybody. Our show is produced by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to track your specs, chat on Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout, that's the number 5, at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Travis, what is on our agenda this week, my friend? Well, this week we have a honest-to-God deviation in our formula and possibly a permanent one uh we're gonna start segment one with kind of our mtgo metagame week in review but there are some developments on that front that we will discuss shortly segment two our top paper movers the cards that uh, have moved the most in price over the past week followed by our top mtgo movers segment three our paper cards to watch some stuff james and i think has a positive outlook on life and finally segment four our topic of the week uh one that i've been itching to chat about uh universes beyond um this is the lord of the rings warhammer 40k and uh, sets into the future um and kind of what's going on in there what we can extrapolate from that so i think there's some good conversation to be had in there uh but let's start at the top here uh we'll begin with the easy part of this the metagame which is the mox showcase season two which you said uh it was looks like it's an Eight-player event, or at least we got the data for the top eight, was a draft and constructed combination. Is that correct? The event included, I think, multiple rounds of both draft and modern. Okay. So I see it was taken down by a Heliod Collected Company deck um, utilizing, you know, the familiar package, Arbor Elf and Utopia Sprawl. You've got your Walking Ballista Spike Feeder combo, the, you know, the three or four different ways you can cut that. Um, doesn't look like it's too much of a deviation from this uh typical formula yeah and they were also in fourth in this tournament death shadow in third uh hammer time in fifth two blue red prowess decks in seventh and eighth uh, probably most notable was the rakdos aggro deck which is a little different than the death shadow builds that we've seen running around this is four abbot of carol keep three croxa titan of death's hunger four monastery swift spear and four soul scar mage so the prowess creatures from the blue red prowess builds but instead of blue, they're running black, and that gives them access to Cling to Dust, Fatal Push, Inquisition uh, of Kozlak, Coligan's Command, Lightning Bolt, Thought Season, Unearth, alongside four Mistress Bobble and two Seal of File Fire, with Lurus of the Dream Den coming out of the sideboard. A uh, a solid deck. Um, the Coligan's Command, I feel like we haven't seen too much of in recent memory. Um, interesting to see that. 
coming back again. Two of the modes on Coligan's command are present on the new Is It command that we're getting in Strixhaven that's already been revealed. I think it's uh, the dealing damage and destroying artifacts. So people are already talking about whether that card has a, history, a future in modern as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, it doesn't seem like an unreasonable expectation. So I guess the bigger story here on the metagame we can review is that part of the reason we can only really deal with the mocks is because the mothership, uh, which has for years and years listed M magic uh, online deck lists, is no longer publishing them as far as I can tell. Last published deck lists were March 10th and there's nothing beyond that. Somebody told us on Twitter when we were talking about it that uh, they had made an announcement that I guess we didn't catch. Um, Got to look into that further because it's pretty crazy to me that in an era where most video games go way out of their way to generate APIs that allow third parties to create all sorts of like very granular stats-based sites for fans and players, that you want to go completely the opposite direction and try to black box this game that they're claiming 30 million people play and... Do what exactly? Set it up so that people have to do go through leap through hoops to try to figure out what the meta is they're going to be facing when they show up at a tournament. Yeah, I I don't get it. I mean, those types of of websites that you know give you those that deep dive of data and tell you about the meta and whatnot. Those are how tons of content creators sort of engage with the game and the way a lot of fans, the the really into it fans, get to learn about what it is that they're playing and, and you know if you're a new player who's if you're a really new player it's gobbledygook but if you are if you've kind of gotten over that initial hump that type of information is very valuable because it begins to teach you like how to look at a metagame how to understand what's going on like there's something there for the for the newish player who's trying to develop as a stronger player learning how to use that data and then this is useful all the way up through to the chain right to the pros who find the information very valuable for, you know, slightly different, but ultimately the same reasons. And it's just good content that a lot of creators use as their vehicle for producing something people want to be interested in. I, I just, I, it's so odd, so odd. There was a, a big argument about this. I shouldn't say argument because it was kind of one-sided. People got very angry about this back when they changed the decklist distribution period because it used to be that every event was published. And that was like, I don't know, three-ish years ago, four years ago. And then they said, nope, now we're only going to publish a couple of events. We're not going to give you all the data. And everyone got real angry about it because it seemed like, why would you take this data away from us? The problem isn't the data. The problem is, you know, essentially you're trying to fix a wound with a Band-Aid, right? Like, this isn't how you fix this problem. You have to do something different. And the Wizards just, rather than ever changing their stance on that, appears to have now doubled down on it. It's always been my opinion that this is a matter of them not stepping up to take responsibility for format management and design. Currently, most of their format management for... Uh, formats beyond standard seems to be the very unusual and often detrimental process of banning cards after they have already done damage to formats. They've repeatedly asserted that they do not test 
you know, whether the printing of new cards will create new decks in modern and then figure out what that meta is going to look like. And I just, I, for the amount of money that this company is making, it doesn't make any sense to me to not have dedicated testing teams for each major format. And that doesn't mean they necessarily have one for Popper with 20 staff on it, but for Standard, for Pioneer, Modern, EDH, you know, not Legacy Vintage, not Old School, not not some of these fringy formats, but certainly for your core two, three, four formats, I think you want to take, you know, the reins in hand and be much more proactive about sculpting formats. Yes, one of the great things about Magic is that people can, um, you know, combine these game, this disparate group of game elements into something new and exciting and break the meta. But not stepping into the arena and trying to figure out at least what your, you know, first two or three tiers worth of decks look like <laughs> makes it pretty hard to manage things like power creep and to make sure your formats stay healthy. And their process of just ban whenever there's a problem was fine when it was the occasional ban every few years. In the current era where the most powerful cards from each set are in danger of being banned on any given Sunday, it's quite another matter indeed. Well, it's... Um, you're, you're absolutely right. Is you're not look, You wouldn't be looking for additional staff to... Okay, so... The reason they're getting rid of the deck list data, the reason they curtailed it in the past, and the reason they're getting rid of it now is uh, supposedly, you know, and we're, we're kind of dividing the tea leaves here a little bit, but to make it harder to break the formats, or at least make it make it less likely that the formats will go stale as caused by players having information about the metagame. They're hoping that if everyone operates with less information that it will... lead to more deck diversity um, and less stagnation so So that's what the problem they're trying to solve so let me just stop you right there because i i cynically believe that it's not so much about preventing people from solving the meta which is inevitable anyway The, the thing about this is that it actually makes it worse for the more casually engaged players but doesn't really affect the true grinders because the people that are grinding modern day in day out they know the meta because they're in it all the time. Like if you're playing a couple hours of modern every evening, five days a week, you're aware of the meta because you're facing it constantly and you're going to make your own decisions about what's going on. You know, if you're seeing, you know, during the era of Oko, if you see Oko, Sultai, Arcane, uh, Arkham's Astrolab decks, two out of every five games, you're going to be more than aware that that's the case. But somebody who wants to just pick up a deck for a weekend casual tourney and hop in and, and fool around is in a much worse position if they've got to go hunting around the internet to try to track down the latest information. You know, if they've got to, they got to join a private Discord or, you know, bookmark a third-party website to try to get information from smaller and mid-sized tournaments that are reporting up the chain, you're just making everything tougher than it needs to be. So my cynical perspective is what they're actually trying to do is prevent people from uh, being in a position to latch onto the ammunition to complain to wizards that their formats are broken. Uh, hmm. I mean, I, uh, I'm not sure how to how to parse that. Because uh, it's not it's not as simple as as 
wizards wanting to, you know, light the flame of discovery amongst players. There's, there's zero, <laughs> getting zero signals that that's the case. It's much more about, we don't really want to take the goodwill hit when we keep breaking formats by pushing broken cards and sets that we want you to buy in the here and now, but we're kind of hoping that we're not actually that upset if we have to ban some of the best mythics from the set six months ago, because we'd really like you to be buying the new ones anyway. I mean, there's there's a very, very suspicious uh, set of motivations that are built into the current structure. And this move, further obscuring metadata, only heightens that kind of suspicion. Well, I don't think... Okay, so I guess I don't think that what the reasoning that I outlined is exclusive to what you said. They're not. They're not. They're not different concepts. They're just, I think, different interpretations of essentially the same thing. Because Wizards is saying, okay, we're we're going to take this. The the I guess mildly less cynical take is Wizards is saying we're going to take all this data away so that it leads to a less stale format, which means that it covers up our mistakes and how much we're screwing with card balance and what have you by by design right like it's all kind of the same picture it's the two sides of the same coin like so we're, we're pretty much in agreement and, and and potentially saves them money too if there's somebody whose job it was to keep that stuff updated and they can obsolete that person and shift them to some other role or whatever which leads me to what i was what the, what the point i wanted to respond to is we know from what has has were literally just told us that 2020 was magic's best year on record and uh, we're not, you know, all of us, a lot of us are used to probably thinking about Wizards as sort of this kind of scrappy operation, right? Like, you've got R&D, which is, you know, whatever, 10, 12, 15 people. You've got that type of information out there. Uh, R&D and development and a couple other play design teams. We, you, you think of Magic as just not, as Wizards as just not being that big. But the reality of the situation is they're making a t- of money every year like gobs and gobs of money one secret layer would pay the salary of basically every employee needed to test every environment for an entire year right like their profit margins on those are so strong yep that they could release what one secret layer could be earmarked for that type of thing and it would be enough to hopefully balance the formats out and let, and then let people have data. Yeah, and it's not even that hard to do. You could just print four new cards in that secret layer and call it secret layer playtest. <laughs> and it would make a ton of money and announce that that's what you're going to do. You're going to fund the process of you know better format management and design. And there's going to be you're going to do one of those a year to support those roles. Win, 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 win. Now, I mean, mm-hmm. if, they don't have to do new cards in it. I mean, people, there's plenty of people that don't, that hate that idea. So if they really wanted to go for the PR win, they could dodge that bullet by just sidestepping it and just putting out four good cards with a, with a fantastic artist. And yeah, I mean, it's a doable thing, which is why their, their reluctance to do it is bizarre. It's, uh, yeah, I, I, ultimately, I'm not happy if this is the path they're taking to just obscure the data more and more, it's at odds with what every other company is doing. Wizards, I imagine, would make the argument that a company like Riot, who's doing League of Legends, 
can make changes to heroes. We'll just use League as a reference point. Can make changes to heroes as necessary. Wizards doesn't get to do that with magic cards. Once Oko is in the wild, that's it. You cannot change that. So whereas League can release all of that data, and if they see a problem, and if the format, you know, if, if pick orders or whatever stagnate, they can tweak a couple of heroes to fix it. Wizards has none of those tools available to them. And I'm not unsympathetic to that. But it still does seem like a problem of your own design because you know the cards you're making. Like, people in Wizards shouldn't have been looking at Uro and going, ah, yeah, this is reasonable. Right? Like, that, like I, I remember, you shouldn't be able to make to look at that card and have that thought, if you're, especially if you test that whatsoever. So you're choosing to put these cards into the world that are causing these format stagnations and problems and then claiming that you can't fix them well you're admitting that you've structurally created a system by which you can't easily address them other than to ban them and yeah. so i mean that's where the cyn- the cynicism comes in because people there are plenty of good reasons for them to push power creep sell sets ban whatever problems arise without worrying too much about which ones they will be and then just fixing that problem by through bands plus new product to buy. Yeah. So, I mean, at the end of the day, it's unfortunate that this is where we are. And uh, at the moment, you know, we, we are lacking confirmation. We were just talking about this before the cast started. Uh, we don't know what we're going to have available to us going forward. I mean, we, we can cover what we can, where we get it. And maybe like MTG top eight, will have some data or what have you, but it's unclear to me, at least at this point, how much of this, and how much of it will be meaningful going forward? I mean, I don't think it's a total black box. The mocks, they posted the list. It's not like they're withholding lists for major events. And there's a Pro Tour-ish thing coming up. What I guess it's the equivalent of Pro Tour Caldheim. <laughs> who yeah, who they- knows these days? But in a couple weeks. And I'm sure all the lists for that will be out as well. But well, it, and, and they'll probably publish meta in the coverage. Like, they usually put up some graphics. And then they, they post an article to the mothership that details that. I suspect that all continues for the very major tournaments. But not having daily deck list dumps from Magic Online, I, it leads me to wonder whether part of this might just be that they are starting to move towards the... Like that they're in a, uh, an interim phase now where they expect within the next couple of years to phase Magic Online out. And so getting weaning people off those deck dumps is part of that process. Well, I mean, that's possible uh, that maybe uh, you know, I don't have any extra insight to it. Just maybe. Um, I think that, uh, what was the idea I just had in my head? Uh, we will get those events like the mocks and what have you, but they're, they're not going to be every week. Yeah. You know, you and I are used to talking about a pioneer in a modern event every week. And, you know, is it going to be once a month now that we have these discussions or whatever? I, I don't know. And it would be a lot less awkward post-COVID because you, you are going to have small mid-sized tournaments barking up the chain and posting to places like MTG Top 8 so that that data will still flow through third parties. You won't. You just won't have the really big data pools that come out of Magic Online to play with. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, even pre uh, pre covid uh you know for if we rewind two years the only deck list we got out of paper events i mean i guess you got star city lists and you got the gps 
So you were getting you. It wasn't every week that you had decks, but it was regular. It was regular. Um. So yeah, maybe things will look different this time next year, or you know, six months from now, or what have you. But for the time being, we you know, I don't know. We'll, we'll give you what we can one weekend. And keep in mind that like the last time this was a, a flare point in coverage was Frank Carson being told he could no longer publish GP results and win rates. That was like. Mm-hmm. A year ago, February of 2020. Was that that was that that recent? Yeah, I've, yeah. And I remember when Seth was, uh, um, and Goldfish was posting the sort of matchup win percentage rubrics, and they asked them to stop posting that too. So I mean, it's very much within Magic Wizards' modus operandi to repress deck information. Yep. Don't love it. I don't like yep, it. Yep. Don't love it. Not cool. Didn't like it then, don't like it now. Moving right along to the top paper movers of the week. Yet another week of hundreds of obscure cards being put under pressure uh, through the combination of factors in play. We got stimulus checks going out in the US. We have the ongoing lack of in-person buy list access in many regions of the world due to COVID. We have people stuck at home spending more money online. And so Tax tax return income going to be a factor. Uh, this spring as it usually is and i I gotta tell you i'm (laughs) i'm at about two-thirds of last year's total single sales in the first two months of this year that's a lot of sales yep i've done about eight months eight eight january through august of 2020 and keep in mind that was a good year uh in January and February of this year. And that's in a situation where I am so, so, so far behind in listing inventory because I simply do, I'm just out of time. I don't have time to, any more time to spend on this. And this has become, you know, gone from a five hour a week hobby to a 20 hour a week hobby slash small business. And I'm just at my ceiling. So anyway, anyone out there who's really hustling on this stuff must just be having a bonkers banner year. I think I am at half of my sales of all of last year right now in terms right. of gross dollar amount. Yeah. And the, and the margins are just off the charts. <laughs> like, oh. Like obscene. Well, yeah. I mean, and well, pretty much everything I sell has a good margin on it, like by design. Um, you are you so are you are often the last person standing on TCG. Yeah, that, I mean, yep. Which is, uh, you know, I don't have the I certainly don't have the highest volume. I don't make tons of sales, but the ones I do make are pretty solid. So, I mean, like I had an FTV realms, three of them floating around the house that I had bought for like seventy dollars back. I don't know, short a little while after they came out, I paid. Uh, the first one sold for three hundred. And I was like, damn, okay. And then I looked and there was no, I don't think there was any other listed. And I was like, okay, sure, whatever. I'll throw this up for 600 and wait to see what like it comes down to. Then somebody bought the $600 one. It's like, what? <laughs> like, okay, sure. I'll yeah. make $500 on this FTV Realms for no reason whatsoever. You guys want to do this to FTV 20 and Annihilation 2? Because I got some of those. <laughs> Yeah. So it's yeah the stuff like those types of like sealed product and some of these limited cards the profit margins are juicy depending on when you bought in. Yeah, I mean, and the reserve list stuff, 
is not a mirage. People are buying it. And, it, you know, it's not like major vendors are the ones placing the orders with me or others of the pro traders. I mean, obviously there is vendor and speculator action intermixed with all the other uh, collectors plus FOMO and whatever else. But, you know, April 2018, I pick up a bunch of uh, MP to LP Japanese survival of the fittest over in Tokyo for like 32 to $34 a piece, easily selling those all day long on eBay at about 150 Mm-hmm. Sure, I had to hold those for a couple of years, but when you go five times, you don't care much. Yeah. You know what I was shocked is I uh, had <laughs> my parents were visiting this weekend and I get bored sitting there. So I <laughs> dug out my bulk boxes, which I have not really gone through in quite some time and flipped through those while we were chatting. And I found like like a near mint. I had quite a few cards, but like a couple of them were like near mint revised, like winter orb, right? Just which a card which was worth, you know, a couple bucks a while ago. And that damn thing sold like within a day for $40. I think it was winter orb. It was something like that. And like people were buying near mint revised cards for that much money, which is very quickly just, I don't know, for if you've been around like I have. I mean, it's just kind of shocking to see revised cards sell like that. Like yeah. you see the price, you see the prices on TCG Player, and you're like, yeah, okay, whatever. But then to see it sell is a whole other story. And for reference, you can buy Winter Orbs for eight bucks. Oh, that's a Pro Tour one. Uh, it looks like they're like ten bucks normally, tenish to fifteen. Even the Eternal Masters cards are twenty dollars. And, and it's not just old cards. Like newish premium cards are doing just as well. Like selling foil Japanese Great Hinges that I picked up overseas for 13 to 15 dollars for nearly 60 the i I went in on german foil uh, sorry german uh zendikar rising collector boosters and people were like oh german cards so hard to sell and i was like yeah but most of the evs locked up in the expeditions and i bet you those aren't going to be too hard to sell sure enough i got out of my foil german misty rainforest and scalding tarn this week within about three days of posting each of them on eBay and got 40% premiums over the current TCG English prices. Wow. Because no one else opened them. So over here at least. So the few people that care about that kind of thing will zero in on it and be like, oh, that's a wicked cool scalding turn. I'm going to, you know, I might be only guy in any play group I ever play with that tables that card. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Things are busy. It's wild out there. It's wild. And and I don't think it's going to slow down much. Not for a few months. No. Normally you would see Um, a summer lull that usually happens after the super busy spring, which is usually traditionally the best period for single sales in my, in in my estimation. If, if the U S very successfully rolls out vaccines, as you seem to be on target to do by early midsummer, then you could still see people start to uh, go out and enjoy barbecues and parks and like camping trips and whatever else. There's going to be huge pent up demand for road trips and that kind of thing. Um, And that could pull people away from collectibles. But I also wonder whether this super trend in collectibles is so powerful that it being on the upswing as hard as it is, might only just get pulled back a little by the gravity of other options. I, I yeah, I would agree that 
a return in some capacity to normal life, yeah, I'm doing air quotes here, will put drag on all of this. But I don't think that it will be a stop sign. Like if we're, it will be drag, but not a halt. Yeah, like if we're at say two hundred percent of pre-COVID interest in collectibles as a whole, it's possible that post-COVID or in the COVID recovery period, you could go down to one hundred and fifteen to one hundred and forty-five percent of usual demand. But I don't think you go to seventy-five percent. Yeah. Like my worst case scenario would still be above what demand was before COVID kicked in. Yeah. And w- one thing we also haven't touched on here is we've been relatively quiet about for the, in the recent past is the crypto market has been very strong too. I mean, Bitcoin right now is, is already broken 60,000 and it's yeah. floating around there. And you'll remember, you know, in 2017, 20,000 was the number they were trying to surpass. Oh, I, I, and it receded yeah, all the... I very much remember and, because that's the number that I held too long, hope, hoping yeah. to surmount. And then you and, and, then got, you and everybody and else. And then got stuck for a little while. But oops, it's a yeah. triple up since then. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, and it's not just Bitcoin. Ethereum is doing really well. Um, you cannot buy a video card today. Like, <sighs> you just can't do it because of crypto mining. So... There's a lot of value in building there. Plus, you have like the NFTs, um, which I'm, I'm inclined to say are dumb, for, for dumb and bad. But people are buying them and they're drumming up interest. So there's a lot going on there as well. Um, important to, important to point to out it. that non-fungible tokens can be used for a lot of things other than trying to digitize uh, audio-visual collectibles that can arguably be found in the public uh, commons. <laughs> like, the, the premise of owning a video clip that is available on YouTube is certainly an awkward one that mm, my father's generation is going to have trouble wrapping their heads around for sure. And I'm not sure I fully support, depending on the use case. But there are going to be a, a bunch of very interesting things that can be done with NFTs that are ha, have yet to appear or are lurking in the shadows while some of these bigger, crazier projects get all the headlines. Well, I don't, I don't know if you caught it, but um, our uh, companion in arms, Cassie has been talking at length about them and the environmental impact, which I would encourage you to go check out her Twitter timeline. It's very informative. And, uh, you know, I, I can't, I'm not going to vouch for a complete accuracy in every statement, but she's pretty, uh, pretty on the ball. So I think that there's a lot of very legitimate concerns there um, to at least apprise yourself of. By the way, did you catch that uh, a Wizards artist, one whose name I, I don't remember, not a, not a notable one, um, did an NFT for the very first did the very first magic art NFT today? Uh, the uh, other day, and yeah, it was covered in the Discord. The okay. that they had basically posted it and then had quickly retracted it because Wizards Legal stepped in to say, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa! We don't, we haven't figured out <laughs> whose rights are whose here." Um, so yeah. that was like yesterday, wasn't it? Yeah, or today? Yesterday. I thought it was today. yesterday. So it's going to be fascinating to see how that unfolds. Um, but it's very, it, it will be very interesting. Because there, there are pieces of art, a lot of, for people that aren't in the know and didn't listen to the our interview with uh, Josh Krause from Original Magic Art, 
Um, some magic artists make their art the old-fashioned way, in physical form, with oils or acrylics or watercolors or what have you. Um, but a lot of magic artists make their art digitally, and it only exists as a file on their machine that they then send to wizards. So the premise of being able to own the official tokenized version of a piece of art and then displaying it in a digital frame and being the only one that is officially allowed to do so, I could see that getting some play. It's amusing because there's nothing stopping you from taking the image from online and just displaying it in a digital frame. <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, if you're going to put anything in a digital frame, it's not the artwork. You display, like, the token, you know, just, like, the token that shows that you're the one that controls it, right? Like, but, but the funny thing is that you don't even control it. Like, in, in all these cases, like, for NBA Top Shots, it's not like you own the three-pointer that Jordan used to sink the calves in whatever year. You you own it in the context of that app. But people can just go look up that shot anytime they want on YouTube. So right, right. and you don't have any redistribution rights either. Like it's not like you get to by locating that in a booster pack that you're the one that gets royalties if it's used in such and such a circumstance. Nothing of the sort is true. You it's just this collective uh, agreement to place value on NBA top shots. Like there was an article in the Wall Street Journal last week talking about a guy who put 175,000 in pretty early and his portfolio of top shots clips is worth 20 million bucks. Hmm. Yep. Because the NBA's is a hot property. And you know the ability for some dude to whip out his phone in a nightclub and show off his tokenized clip of LeBron dunking on somebody. I I can sort of see the appeal there in certain circles. Um, <laughs> it's it's going to be pretty amusing when the guy across from him just pulls out YouTube and brings up the same clip, but <laughs> it's a conversation starter if nothing else. Uh, I see. Okay, I I have. I, I can't claim to have a perfect understanding of all of that. Um, and frankly, I would question anyone who does claim that. But, the you know, importantly, I just I'm not claiming to be an expert here, but I think I know enough to at least make a relatively educate have a relatively educated opinion. And they if there was no uh, real cost associated with them. Um, I wouldn't care. Like, it, it, they'd be fine, right? They'd just be something I didn't care about. They'd be like expensive Funko Pops, like whatever. Like, this is ludicrous to me that people would spend money on it, but they exist and they're whatever. But the fact that there is, uh, you know, very reasonably a massive um, environmental impact, energy impact is enough reason for me to have grave misgivings as far as they And go. just to be clear, you're you're referring to the fact that anything that is using a distributed blockchain to record information necessarily needs to write it to the entire chain and so the pro the energy required to support that process is the environmental impact. Yeah, it's that's basically what it is. Yeah, it's very significant. Um yes, essentially. So so Bitcoin is not uh does not wash its hands of it. Uh, uh, you know, it's sort of crypto as a larger market. You you can kind of oh, I don't want to be put into the position of trying to go to go to, to defend or go to bat for this. Um, but you could kind of try and draw a distinction between like Bitcoin, 
which you can consider, which is not any cleaner, but you can look at it and go, okay, well, this is like digital gold. You, you don't, you're not like trading it constantly. You have it, it sits quietly in a ledger. There aren't tons of transactions going on. Um, and, and truth be told, it's the mining that's the problem. Like you could stop the mining entirely. Like you could just freeze Bitcoin and like it would still be useful as what it is. And Bitcoin and mining will stop at some point. Um, there is a limited number of Bitcoins. Uh, so you could make the claim like, okay, well, if you remove mining from the equation, Bitcoin can be Bitcoin and but still ha- still have value and not drain energy. But like NFTs and Ethereum are in that boat right now but like you're using it for such an unbelievably stupid thing like it's it's definitely putting value a, a judgment value judgment on what it is it's being created um and there was a really good article about it that i read someone who is an educated and um writer but they exorciated all of it but it was well done and i don't have the i obviously can't give the link here um uh, but the cassie i think shared it um so it's worth reading about if you're curious about any of this. And that's our long-winded intro to segment two, mm-hmm. Top Paper Movers. Um, kicking off Zendikar Expeditions. <laughs> Perhaps a little on the nose, starting with a card Dust Bowl. Yeah. <laughs> Dust Bowl, Zendikar Expeditions, version 60 to $92. A lot of the original uh, exposition, expeditions from uh, Battle for Zendikar are under pressure, especially if they didn't show up again in the Expeditions Part 2 in Zendikar Rising. Pearl Medallion out of Tempest. This is just a uh, regular version since they didn't have foils in Tempest. 15 to 24. This card, ha- the medallions have not gotten a reprint anywhere ever in the history of Magic other than in Commander 2014. Long overdue, but unlikely to show up in the Strixhaven annual Commander. Uh, five commander decks because they are presumably going to be two color enemy color decks so unlikely to get medallions there i could see them sneaking these in the modern horizons too seems like it wouldn't be a bad inclusion they'd be interesting cards to have in that format um it would be a potent reprint cycle that you know they're going to have a, a monorack of some sort it's just kind of a question of you know which one they might go with if you don't see it here, you'll see it. It's a shoe in for something like Commander Legends too. It can and they can easily show up as a secret layer cycle. I mean, there's lots of places they could put it eventually, but but yeah. the Tempest versions are never going to get any less rare than they are now. Um, so I suspect that these will keep pushing slowly upward, re- regardless of any given reprint. Yeah. Do you ever see the Charlie Brown Emerald Medallions? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're nifty. I've got one floating around somewhere. I wonder what they're worth these days. I don't actually know. I know they were like 35 bucks back when the medallions were like a few dollars. Her- uh, Hercules Recall out of Antiquities. Non-foil, uh, obviously. 85 to about 140. It's just OG printing. It's not a reserve list card. It's just the oldest version thereof. Zombie Master. We were talking earlier about uh, revised cards that uh, are oddly suddenly worth more money than they used to be. Zombie Master going from about eight or nine bucks to 14 or 15 about 65 percent gains that's just that revised pressure that we've been seeing for weeks now eureka out of legends 700 to maybe 1200 or so an actual playable vintage cube style card that's been in many iterations of vintage cube on magic online uh, not super surprised to see this push up 
uh, in the wake of everything that's going on, and it's probably the kind of card that will end up in the three to five thousand dollar range, not too far in the distant future. Yeah, yeah, it's a nifty looking card too. I always like the art on that. It's uh, it's goofy, but it's amusing. Um, opposition uh, out of the invocations uh, masterpieces set forty five to eighty. Um, like all the other masterpieces, these are under pressure, whether it's the expeditions, the invocations, the inventions, take your pick. Uh, so so just to diverge for a second, you, you know that the Eureka art that you just complimented is folio, is folio art, right? I, yeah, I mean, I do. I like that it's goofy and funny. Let me pull it back up again. Here, let me give. I heard you start. Uh, typing. I'll get, I heard you start typing when I was uh, writing. Uh, and I'm I'll, like, I'll give oh, you a better. I'll that. give you a better link because our our boy Original Magic Art has this posted uh, for it's, sale. Here you go. I would say that it is uh, less of his style than a lot of the other stuff. Well, it's not the him. This Foglio is Kaja, but they did share a style. I would argue. They do share a style. This is less so than when it's typically him doing the artwork, I think. And I like the composition being goofy. I don't particularly love the technique, but I like the composition, if that makes sense. It's funny that it has E equals MC squared. <laughs> that's why it's so... That's that's like that's right. what sells it. Is right. It's so goofy. Right in the middle. <laughs> Yeah, it is an odd piece of art, which is why I they like were it. clearly clearly Einstein fans because they also did that in Presence of the Master, right? Yeah, I ha- I wrote a long winded bit about how the sort of streamlining of magic art made cards less interesting because instead of you got lots of like sixes and sevens and sometimes eights, but you don't get tens anymore because they clamped down on the style so much. And I liked it back in the old days when you got ones and tens and you got everything in between. I mean, I think them loving off Seb McKinnon pretty hard demonstrates you. It's not that hard to get tens these days. Uh, you know, I mean, there's some very good stuff out there. I'm not going to argue that, but like, I don't know. I liked that. I, I, I like stasis. Let's say that I like stasis. You would never see a card like stasis today. Um, Okay, Silver Overlord, the Secret Layer Edition, uh, I think we're looking at here, 30 to 60. Uh, This was released at the end of, I can't say last year, end of 2019 for $40. The whole set was $40. yeah, yeah, yeah. So now you have the Sliver Overlord is close as you know, sixty bucks. The Earth Dragon is fifty. Reaper King's four bucks, but even still, that's one hundred and fourteen. One hundred and fourteen well. over forty at current singles yeah. prices, and I would argue the two more expensive cards are going to keep pushing. At some point, we should do a retrospective of like every secret layer at its release price and like current market price and see how those are faring over time now that we've got a little over a year's worth of data on solid plan tempest of freet out of legends 20 to 40 not reserve list either just old lanowar waste out of apocalypse 7 to 14 that's the original printing of that card and i gotta say uh is the best looking version Mm-hmm. Worship, those foils are very pricey. Um, yeah. Worship, uh, Masterpiece uh, Ahmed Ket, Invocations, 18 to 46. More Invocations under pressure. They're just getting mopped up at this point. 
Uh, Glacier Revelation Modern Horizons Foil Uncommon from two to about seven dollars. That's snow interest, and keep in mind that the Modern Horizons one foil drop rate was low. One of the things I talked about with Cliff last week was I wonder what they're doing for Modern Horizons two because MHON foil drop rates was a big deal. Really uh, underwrote a lot of the EV in the set because you could rely on the foils to be uh, fairly pricey. They go with the new foil drop rates. That will not be the case. Um, true. They, uh, we, we didn't have collector's boosters when Modern Horizons 1 came out, right? I believe Correct. they came shortly after. So I wonder if they're just going to go with essentially the elevated foil drop rate but also include collector's boosters as sort of a trade-off to that. It could look a lot like Commander Legends, where yeah. the regular the foil commons and uncommons were just dime a dozen. Yeah. Double, double, double Masters has the same problem. You had Basalt Monolith, first time ever in foil. Card's not worth much yet because so, so many VIP packs were opened where that was just a throwaway portion of the EV. Yeah, that's what I would anticipate seeing here. Yep. Don't know for sure. Uh, so moving right along, Sheltered Valley out of Alliances, 6 to $20 plus. A reserve list card under pressure, as with all m much of the rest of this. And then here's the two most interesting things. Oath of Druids went from 6 to $42. Foil card that most people don't even know called Selective Memory at a World Wake. Foils went... Non-foils went from $0.50 cents to $5. Foils went from 2 to 16 or something. And somebody hit me up on Twitter, and then I had a couple of subsequent conversations where apparently there's a rumor going around that there's going to be a Simic legend in Strixhaven that interacts with the Exile Zone. Because if you look at what Oath of, what Oath of Druids does, is if your opponents have... Uh, more creatures than you, right? Uh, yeah, you cho you choose... At the beginning of each player's upkeep, they choose an opponent who has more creatures than them. And then they they can reveal a card from the top of their library until they find a creature card and put it into the yeah. battlefield. So if you're behind on creatures versus somebody else in the game, you get to put a creature into play. So the trick with Oath of Druids is, uh, has always been to give your opponent some useless token creatures... So that you can then flip something really nasty into play. And between that and Selective Memory being under pressure, Selective Memory says it's a sorcery for three and a blue. Search your library for any number of non-land cards and exile them, then shuffle your library. Well, why would you want to exile a bunch of permanents? And why would that card in Oath of Druids be under pressure? Well, what if there's a Simic legend coming that's been leaked that we haven't heard about specifically yet that... For instance, lets you play creatures out of the exile zone and your opponents get a token as a result. It's an interesting consideration. Um, you know, it's hard for me to get, for me to, you know, recommend buying cards on unrevealed leaked information, right? Uh, but I see where the desire is coming from. Um, I do notice that the uh the exodus copies have you know have emptied um as well as the judge promos good luck there 
but the Commander 2016 one is still in decent supply. We're looking at 20 vendors with near mint copies. Um, you know, one guy's got 10, another guy's got five. They're, you know, they're, you'll pay three or four bucks for them, but they're still out there. But that's the crazy thing. If Oath of Druids is relevant, uh, in the same way that a lot of the sacrifice-related stuff is relevant with Turgrid, um, or, you know, this specific black cards that made, were kind of auto-includes in Tiny Bones last summer, but there's no reprint for Oath of Druids, and it's only got one printing that's 20 years old and one printing from 2016, those 2016 copies are going to spike hard over 20. They definitely will. And it's, you have to wonder if you're supposed to play the game of, uh, do you buy them now and hope that that's right? I don't know. I'm not advocating. That. I don't, I don't have enough information to be buying, buying this card yet, but I wouldn't be, I, but it's, and it's only in a thousand decks reported on EDH Rec, so it really needs a commander that that wants the card in play and can really make great use of it for to justify the targeting. But the fact that these two cards <laughs> spiked, and I don't have any other good reason for them, makes me lend credence to the rumor. One of the things I've learned over this the is- years is that when somebody whispers something in my ear like, hey, I was thinking maybe, or... Have you heard this thing? <laughs> it often means they did like they heard it more definitively than they're letting on. Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm looking at this again. Oath of Druids exiles nothing, so I guess this is this is all supposed to be a, a a combo with selective memory. Like I don't. No, no, no. It's it's that the commander, like, like let's say that the Sim- Simic. You know, we're getting five commander decks, the annual decks, the good deck, the yeah, good yeah, decks. Yeah, the Simic Let's say that something. the Simic commander gives tokens out, which turns on Oath of Druids. And that the, and that, oh, and that, okay. that commander also lets you play creatures from exile. Okay, I get okay, I I caught I merged those in my head. I see. The commander gives tokens away. Ah uh, Like it yeah, says something like the creature so. the text on the commander could be something like uh you you may play creatures creature spells that are in your exiled zone when you do so target target opponent gains gets a one one spirit token or something all right so what's wild here is i would have to imagine most versions of this purported commander would not be good with oath of druids first of all oath of druids says at the beginning first of all there are lots of ways you can make sure other players have more creatures than you already like, you don't need a commander to do it. Like, you just, EDH will frequently be in a situation where Orth of Druids works for you. Uh, you can really force it if you want with just a couple lands, like Forbidden Orchard, which is how they make it work in Vintage. Uh, also, it's at the beginning of each player's upkeep, not your upkeep. So every player other than the guy with the most creatures in play gets to do the Oath. So it's like... Well, even if this commander exists, is it good? Well, but people have played all sorts of weird group hug commanders and commander chaos commanders. So it's really more not, is it good, but will it be popular? But I, I, yeah, I guess my thought is just like this commander doesn't seem like it would change the usefulness or desire for oath of druids. Like that card hasn't changed. Uh, but well, I mean, whatever. It's, it, it it'll move. It, it depends just, on the final text, right? And whether we're even shaking the right leg of the dog. I, I actually don't think it depends on the final text. I don't think. It, I think there's virtually no way they could print that card where the text actually 
makes this remarkably good. It will just be people will look at it and go, oh, this puts tokens in the planner my opponent's control. Oh, the druids must be good in it, and that'll you know, that'll be it. If it says something like, you, you play a creature out of exile, and when you do, every opponent gets a 1-1, one, one, then it, it certainly makes Oath of Druids better. Because it keeps them ahead on count. So you get to, they I don't mean, get to do Oath, but you do. The problem I have with that is that presumes no one else is playing any playing or removing creatures. <laughs> no, like, I, mean, I mean, there's lots of combos that presume somebody didn't interfere with them. But if, if, it, if, you, it, if your whole deck is routinely designed to keep your opponents ahead on creature count so that you can play more effective ones for free, you can build around that. Uh, you can, but like you, you can do that already. Yeah, but you can't because what you're missing is that a, a commander that's in your command zone that say costs two or three that you're going to cast, you're going to have a fairly easy time keeping in play over the course of the game. Is a lot different than yeah, there are cards like Forbidden Orchard that you could put in your deck, but if your commander doesn't have any synergy with them, then that that's a non-starter. Well, I, I you know this is a whatever it is what it, it, it we'll see what happens it's, it's too much I, debate for for a loose rumor but but yeah. these two cards moved and no one else has been able to explain to me why so yeah i don't i don't, I don't question that at all like i totally believe that that's why we're talking about this all right so moving right along magic online movers of the week most notably kozilix return going from about three and a quarter tickets to five and a half 75 percent gains it's in modern sideboards used in multiple red decks um, out of the board, usually two copies, sometimes three. Curse of Opulence, um, going from four tickets to seven and a half. That's largely EDH pressure, and the fact that it's probably only available through the treasure chests um, or as a promo. Uh, Submerge from Nemesis, four and a half tickets to about nine for almost a double up. EDH plus Teamer Delver usage there. And then Kaya's Guile out of Modern Horizons, going from about a 1.6 tickets to 4.7, uh, 180% plus gains on the back of relatively constant usage in five-color Niv-Mizzet in modern. Oh, the Niv-Mizzet in build. I see. Um, okay, well, let's move on to our cards to watch here. Uh, looks like you've got a card we've already talked about. Yeah, so easy arbitrage uh, slam dunk here. The Sliver Overlords... Despite the ridiculous export fees uh, to Europe on the secret layers uh, in 20, late 2019, the two singles here on that Kaleidoscope Killer set have well outpaced that, and so Europe has these wildly underpriced in the mid-20s. You can pick up the Sliver Overlord around $26, sell targets setting up to be anywhere from 60 plus. Could be 60, could be 70, could be up to 100 sometime this year. There's zero way to restock on any of this stuff. Like, what's out there is out there. So if it hasn't shown up in the market yet, it's unlikely to show up later. It's only in about 1,500 reported decks, but it's a slam dunk if you're building a five-color Slivers build. And I would say that the next time we see Slivers is not going to be too far off. Could be as soon as Modern Horizons 2. Could be Slivers show up in a standard set sometime in the next couple of years. Who knows? Were there Slivers in Modern Horizons 1? Yep. Or am I thinking oh, yeah. of that course? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I we sold a bunch of foil Slivers as a result because we heard early through the grapevine that Slivers were going to be part of the set along with Ninjas. So everybody was running around trying to track down odd foil specs related to both. 
Oh, yeah, because wasn't there – there was a GP Toronto – or no, a GP Niagara Falls around that time, I believe, because I went and bought a couple Sliver Queens. Did well on, the, did well on, on those the, randomly, too? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I paid like 70 bucks for those Sliver Queens, and I just sold one for like $350. Yep. Um, yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, sure. So, I mean – as for the pick itself, you know, if they're 20 bucks in Europe, 20, 30 bucks in Europe, and they're sitting at 60 in America, then have at it, right? Like, you're not going to really see Sliver Overlord again anytime soon. And frankly, I could see this climbing to $100 without much trouble. And then the art's real nice. Like, Clyde of Killers has cool art, psychedelic. Yeah. Nifty. Nifty, nifty. Um, I'm okay. So I'm on a theme this week. Uh, you know, with all the pressure on the invocations and what have you, I was poking around to see it was uh, floating around, and I think there's some interesting cards in the invention set, um, the Kaladesh inventions. Uh, most of that stuff is already pretty pricey, but I do think there's a couple outliers here. The first is a card that I have been surprised is as cheap as it has been over and over again. Um, which doesn't like me being surprised that the card is cheaper than I thought it would be, won't make the price go up. But I have found that the cards that I am surprised about how cheap they are eventually do move. And the first card, uh, the card that fits that this week is Solemn Simulacrum, the inventions out of Kaladesh. You can buy these for about 70 bucks right now. Um, the market price is just under that about 68, which is good because it shows that it's going up, not down. Their Psalm uh, Simulacrum is an 87,000 EDH direct decks, so a pretty good number. Uh, he is still a very popular creature. He was a top 15 creature this week, mostly beat out by creatures uh, from that elf deck. Uh, but people are still putting Psalm Simulacrum in their deck for sure. It's got a medium-ish supply. There's like 27 vendors, which is not low. Uh, it's not a huge amount, but it's not low for invocate for inventions. Uh, pretty much everyone's got one or two. No one's real deep on these. Um, and the, 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 there's a ramp there. You know, you go through like four play sets and you're up into the $100 range. But so the, the supply is medium, um, but he's still ultra popular. We're seeing a lot of pressure on all these collectible versions. The art is is admittedly mediocre, but frankly, all of the art on Solemn Simulacrums are fine, except for the M21. The I'm sorry, the Double Masters art, which is the best art, but this is still fine. Not Double Masters, uh, Core 21. Core 21, thank you. Um, but all this set aside, doesn't even matter if the art's terrible. It's still the only invention version of Solemn Simulacrum, and with the pressure all these under are underneath... Um, I w- I'm, I'm thinking these are 72, like 150, 175 this year. This is a fascinating case study in what do different supply levels of vaguely similar premium cards of the same card, like different versions of the same card, how do they interact in the marketplace? And does one prevent the other from selling so specifically i'm referring to the fact that that core 21 show borderless foil showcase version that everybody was so hot on last summer is more or less languishing on tcg player around the four dollar mark with 90 listings left 
but three times mm-hmm. as many as the masterpiece. Um, so it is, and the masterpiece version is out there around eighty-ish, probably safe to say. So you've got a twenty times premium currently on the invention, and now just this week you have Times Square remastered releasing the old border foil with the original Invitational art. Yeah, I, but the thing I, for what it's for what it's worth, that one in particular. Um, I think that the market for that is very small. Um, it's a it's a cool copy, and I like it because I like old borders. But old borders are definitely more popular with your much longer term and franchise players. I think in general the wide demand for the old border foils is going to be small ish. Which version do you think will be the most expensive in a year? The invention. Not because it looks the best, just because it's the essentially the rarest and, you know, it's an old masterpiece version. Card Kingdom has the original Mirrodin foils at $40 near mint. They have the Time Spiral remastered time shifted foil coming out this week at $80 near mint, which is about the same as you can get the invention for. Yeah. I think the times the old border times spiral foils across the board, um, you know, I, I don't know if you guys and Cliff really got into it, but it sounds like supply numbers are super low. Everyone thought, well, so that's what everyone thought. No, there's no but they're I, super low. Uh, okay, I mean that's different than what was being reported on Twitter. Like someone found someone on Amazon selling a thousand boxes. Yeah. The- so that was that was that was Kyle Lopez reporting that. Um, yeah. And okay, the feedback so, that I provided, having reached out to my network, was it's utterly irrelevant. Yes, Amazon right. has thousands of boxes. It doesn't matter because the those boxes were largely pulled away. Do not represent a much larger print run. It means a higher percentage of the low print run was given to Amazon. And that's, that's also true of Commander Legends, because I don't know if you caught this on, on the Discord over the last 48 hours, but Commander Legends collector booster boxes, which are routinely selling in the high 300s, low 400s, depending on where you're looking, um, popped up on Amazon at 200 bucks a piece. That's Wizards Direct to Amazon, cutting out middlemen, way after anybody else has been able to order any from their distributors. So... Where did those units come from? Is it a reprint? No, it's probably just inventory that was always earmarked for Amazon that Wizards is pushing through uh, that channel. And it doesn't mean that there's going to be some flood of Commander Legends product over the next six months. It just means Amazon is an increasingly important outlet for Wizards product. The information I got from various partners this week on Time Spiral Remastered is that it is definitely a low to medium print run definitely a one shot they're not going back to the printing presses on it it's not going to be available all year super easily there are still very valid questions about the set's ev and how swingy the boxes are because the fact that these times time shifted foils show up at less than one a little more than than one per box like i think it's every 27 packs or something is and that they vary wildly in their value so far means that you open a foil old border thought sees you're having a real good day 
you open a uh, like whatever the one two a three bin inspector. Uh, you know, our people were snapping those off at $10 gladly at face-to-face this afternoon. But is that a $20 or $30 card? Maybe, but it's not a Thoughtseize. Um, so I... Sure, I believe all I, of I, this. I, I also yeah. had a vendor tell me today that their first 17 boxes, they opened zero time-shifted foils. <laughs> That's a bummer. Um... So they're, de- they're definitely not super common. And in fact, we have a group, a singles group buys that are being offered to us by vendors that are going to be like low single digit copies of the time shifted foils per card. Because that list is, I think, something like 121 cards or something like that. I have to double check. Um, but it's a, lo- it's a fairly long list and you can only get as you basically need... At in an ideal scenario, one per box, and it's actually just statistically worse than that. So you have to open a lot of product to get full play sets of this stuff. Long story short, the the solemn has a decent chance of being worth more than the invention. I suspect that they are about the same rarity, and I'm very curious to see where they end up a year out. Mm-hmm. My concern there, and this this extends to all the all the time spiral, old border foils, is I think generally the demand for those isn't going to be as good as people might think it is. Um, Twitter is going to, a lot of the loudest voices are people that are longtime and franchise players who are going to take kindly to those treatments because they're what they they kind of grew up on in some cases i i don't know if the widespread demand is there for them and even when i talk to people who have played magic for a while some people are pretty lukewarm on the old borders people who like them like myself really like them but they're not a home run. So, I mean, stuff like the old border foil Thossies will definitely stay expensive just based on how rare they are. But, like, I I, I, I mean, I, this, I could come out wrong on this. I just don't know if there's a widespread demand. And if they stay very expensive, it's because the supply is just brutal. Well, that, but that's just it. The, it doesn't matter that there's not widespread demand. It doesn't matter that some people like secret layer, certain secret layer art treatments and not others. You, you don't need... To have for to have a home run spec, you don't need to have something that a hundred percent of Magic players want. You only need to have one percent of Magic players want it, but supply to be very very low. And and well, and that's I, I, that's the situation the time shifted foils are walking into. And I would also argue that part of what's going to make them keep selling over time is that they are so rare and so hard to come by, and so they become vebulin goods where like their part of their value is just the fact that they are valuable because they are rare and not because their utility is higher. Um, I, I understand that, but it, then the price rests very heavily on the supply, which is, as far as I'm concerned, a bit of a question mark I, at the and, moment. Even if, it's, even if it's a low supply, like let, a difference at how low begins to make a big difference. Let me reassure the listeners. One comment from one vendor notwithstanding, time spiral is not a high supply. Uh, and I'm I'm not I'm not claiming that it's high supply. I'm just saying like it, there's different ver, ver amounts of what low supply means. Um, 
I, I don't know. I, I'm not sold on them being very val on them having an, a great enough demand, I should say. I, I'm uh, looking at these the same way I should have looked at the mystery booster convention edition test print cards before they got real pricey. That I remember you and I talking about those last year and being like, ah, they're wacky. You can't play them anywhere. Like this is this is like a cute thing that's never going to be a really big deal. Maybe three or four of them will be worth some money. Nah, man, they're all worth money because they're hard to find. I don't know if we understood, again, at the time, what the supply was actually going to look like on those. Well, COVID had a lot to do with it because there haven't been GPs where people could run these drafts for okay, for, for a lot of the year. So when pre-COVID, we had every every reason to suspect that they weren't going to be that big a deal. But it was it's pretty tough because they basically released within a few months of the COVID thing, the COVID hammer dropping. So people were still trying to parse the early information about COVID as they were trying to parse what to do about those. And, but the thing is, even if they had been made available for an entire year and then, and then the faucet turned off, they would have taken a lot, a lot longer to accelerate, but they still would have got there. It's the thing what I'm seeing with, with premium magic cards and what makes for a spike is single source supply. There is a tremendous difference between everything from annual commander decks to things you can only get at conventions to secret layers that are only out what used to be three days or whatever. And now it's a month, but still just a month. A situation where vendors cannot order additional product from their distributors accelerates your curve. That's that's the end of the story. <laughs> it's it's a huge difference between something like that versus a standard set, which was the you know the default unit of measurement for a magic product for twenty years, where in theory you could get them from your distributor for about a year and a half to two years, because you needed them to be in in play for standard. Now Wizards is much more comfortable putting stuff out there that's really easy to come by for like six weeks or so, and then starts to dry up pretty much in a hurry. E- even the the foil borderless stuff from Double Masters is probably not too far off from drying up despite the tremendous amount of supply that hit the market all at once in the fall. Um, Like, yes, I don't disagree with that. In theory, like the differences in supply on these like single release products is significant and can overcome a lot of barriers that old product wouldn't have based on that restriction. Um, I think our our read on the um, test print cards in the first place, and I you know I didn't go back to the tape, but. If, you know, if we were saying, you know, we said, oh, most of these won't be worth that much. A couple of them, they're kind of wacky. They're going to be available all year. Like that was all correct. And then COVID hits. No one can draft. The prices go kind of nuts. But that's because we got like a month and a half worth of these being opened instead of the like 12 months we expected type of thing. Now, if these had been that much more available, prices might have started to move up, but it would have been a slower. It would have taken longer. It would have been easier to see coming. Like... So it's just I don't I don't think we got it wrong, and just like I think that it, it's, hmm. yeah. I, I, 
the prices on those could still go up and we still could have been. I'm, I'm not bringing it up for, you know, whether we're right or we're wrong. I'm bringing it up simply as as one of the data points that I'm taking into consideration when I'm trying to assess whether something, a premium card is likely to be a great spec. A lot of it has to do with the supply constraints. And that ends up being the most important thing. Double Masters VIP booster packs, awesome contents. Prices were soaring for a few weeks, and then supply caught up with demand. And they stagnated for longer than people wanted them to, uh, or expected them to. People were hoping that that was just going to sell out, and the singles were going to soar and keep soaring because it would be so impossible to find them. But you can still find VIP packs at 100 bucks or less online. So until, that, until they dry up, those things are, are still going to be you know, waiting their turn. Ditto with Zendikar Rising Expeditions. I suspect that those are going to get there, but they're going to need some time because they printed like 25% more of those than they did um, of a lot of the other uh, collector booster boxes. And they they reportedly took that, that press time from Commander Legends, which is why Commander Legends did take off right away and generated ridiculous returns on a whole bunch of cards, more or less right out of the gate. So the question then becomes, when we're looking at something like Modern Horizons 2, what are those allocations going to look like? And the early indications I got talking to a few people this week was that Modern Horizons 2 allocations from distributors looked a lot like standard sets. So way more boxes being assigned to like premium stores in the WPN network than you would see for Time Spiral, for instance. And that leads me to believe that they think Modern Horizons 2 is going to be a home run and they're going to lean in hard on it and it's going to be... They'll probably pull their little like fake scarcity stunt where they hold some product back for the first few weeks to make it seem like it's it's drying up and then there'll just be tons of it lying around by the end of the summer. Well, if I'm reminded um, of something Caffrey said, which when he was talking about Time Spiral... He said, you know, when Wizards goes to bat the first time on a product, they make sure it's good. They juice it with good cards. They cut the supply a little bit. You know, they, they make it a product that you wanted to have bought. And then when they come back to it, that's when they start to open the floodgates a little bit more, which we've seen time and time again, right? Yep. Like we, see that, we see them do that type of thing with all these products. So I would agree that Modern Horizons 2 is unlikely to be nearly as appealing as Modern Horizons 1 was for a variety of reasons. Um, well, and it does set up Time Spiral, Time Spiral Remastered to have been a good set because it is the first time out of the gate. I'm not arguing uh, that. See, my concern is... My concern is strictly based that I don't know if the market for those cards is wide enough to support truly wild prices. I think they'll be pricey. I just don't know if they'll be like that pricey. But this is all like, the thing is, I'm not putting numbers on any of this. This is just sort of an intuition. So like, this gives gives me the the opportunity to look at this and go, oh, well, Solemn Simulacrum, you know, foil time spiral is only... $70. $70. I told you it wouldn't be that expensive. Well, and you're going to go, no, that's really expensive. That's like as expensive as the invention is. And I'm like, yeah, but like it's not 200 which is what it sounded, you know. It, it, I, I'm cheating by just refusing to nail numbers to any of this and just saying it's all gut feeling. <laughs> Let me make an earlier point clear because I actually feel the opposite of what you may have interpreted that I felt. Modern Horizons 2 is going to be more appealing than Modern Horizons 1. I, th- I think they're, in terms of the contents... 
there it's going to be even better cooler mm. stuff better stuff i think because they're doing collector boosters it suggests there's going to be premium treatments we didn't have any of that for modern horizons one but well what do you mean but because it's better they're going to print the shit out of it whereas with times probably remastered they don't have confidence <laughs> that the demand is there so they're printing a lot less of it when you say modern horizons 2 is going to be better you're talking you're saying you think that it will have more premium product or are you talking about like the car we, we know the, we're getting collector booster boxes for modern horizons 2 yeah so okay so you're you're and i, I the, the theory i've been espousing in the discord is that in in the pro trader discord is that they'll probably mix in modern horizons one cards and maybe some other modern staples as premium foil board like premium borderless treatment similar to what they did with double masters into the collector boosters as an exclusive they won't be in the regular booster boxes that'll just be the cards that are actually in modern horizons too um but the collector boosters will have a variety of modern cards in the same way that the vip boosters had a bunch of cards that weren't actually in in the set for for double masters or at least had different art uh versus the cards that appeared in the set uh okay i I, yeah i mean no that sounds very reasonable i think that's that's fair um i was thinking of it in terms of the the quality of the cards like i don't think modern horizons 2 is likely to be have as much competitive grade gas as modern horizons strongly disagree i i I think Um, you make i think if you were in charge you would make sure that was true, and I would agree with you that that was a good tact for the sake for the health of the game. I don't think they're going to be able to hold like I don't think they're going to be able to uh, hold back. I, I I think that there is probably almost certainly a faction within the design squad at Wizards that very much wants to protect the formats, and then there's another faction that wants to sell, sell, sell. And that marketing and admin side is going to win that battle every time. And I guarantee you Modern Horizons 2 is going to have some Hogak-level bullshit. Well, you have to remember that Modern Horizons was unbelievably stacked in terms of competitive power. Yep. Like, in terms of how strong... Like, ridiculously so. So, I mean, it's possible that Wizards could aim for that and still miss. Because, uh, I mean, it would be tough... You'd really have to go out of your way to, to go shoot past that. And I mean, if you look at stuff like Modern Masters 2, much worse than Modern Masters 1. To- like yeah, totally different story, though, because in the Masters series, it's all reprints. And once you go to the well, it's hard to go back to the same well again. For instance, you're not going to see Time Spiral remastered, remastered. Like, once you've done the remastered thing with the Time Spiral block, you're screwed. Like, n- now now that's, you've done it, it's done. Now, next time you have to do Innistrad, and after that you have to do Zendikar, or whatever. You, you can go through and do that five or six times over the course of ten years. And my guess is they're only going to get through two or three of those before they realize it's not actually all that great of a product. Um, because the nature of modern magic product formulation is that most things get free, relatively frequent reprints that need them anyway. So despite what Prof would have you believe. So 
you know, how many cards out of Time Spiral actually needed a reprint. And this is where Kyle made Kyle Lopez made perfect sense, is that like a lot of the stuff that's in that set, none of us need. And then the time shifted cards are just gonna be bizarrely expensive because they're so, so rare. And I'm and I'm a well, whereas when they get to say Innistrad, again, what do they, what do they have? They have Liliana of the Veil. They've already printed a premium version of that. They have Snapcaster Mage. They've already done multiple premium versions of that. And then you get you you run out of great cards to reprint pretty fast. So you're gonna have to do some time shifted nonsense or something in in that remastered set too, <laughs> because otherwise, see the thing is, if they had made Time Spiral remastered a standard booster box price that would have made a huge difference because then they're giving you a bunch of cards that have risen above standard price like standard style pricing so if the boxes are cheap they're tremendous value but when the average box price is like 180 dollars you really need to be able to mine ev and it's pretty tough i suspect like Boxes are going to be opened of Time Trial Remastered that are worth sixty to seventy dollars, and that's going to be fairly frequent occurrence. That what's the market value on those boxes? Like, what would you pay for a box right now? If you want like one eighty open market or on like Amazon or whatever, and then less through the Pro Trader Discord. Like, I think we had uh, sub nine hundred dollar cases for six boxes, um, which is certainly better, but they're still going to be super swingy and cracking them is going to be like you crack a case of that. You're going to get one thought season. You're going to be like, yay. And then you better stop because the rest of your boxes won't be like that. <laughs> and if you don't yeah. find the thought till the sixth box, it'll be, you'll probably come out in a situation where um, five to 10 cards probably have covered the cost of your case. If you got reasonably lucky with your hits on the time shifted foils. Well, I, I will say that the um, comment regarding, uh, which you kind of made in passing, but that the, the uh, everything that isn't the old border foils <laughs> might be like almost worthless because who cares about any of that stuff is also is kind of valid. On well, we have cards like, like oh, Damnation yeah. like, and Tarmogoyf where, you know, there was just a really excellent Seb McKinnon Damnation released through Secret Lair. Um, Tarmogoyf is seeing play in jund but like it's, it's not what it yeah and, and who that is playing jund doesn't have their copies yet yeah um it, th- i mean the fact that you might that we might get three months out and look at this and go okay well like literally the only cards anyone wants from this set are the foil old border foils uh that that is a could have some impacts all there. right so th- this uh, is my very long-winded way of saying that was not a very long-winded way of saying that I don't that I don't agree with your pick. It's you don't like no, it's not though. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that I think both of these versions, the time spiral, uh, time shifted, and the invention, are going to get there on scarcity alone, and that some people will prefer one, some people will prefer the other. I personally don't think either will pr- provide much drag on the other, and I think that the four dollar version, if you prefer that awesome for you because your premium version is four bucks so go buy it and ignore the other two but there are people that there are lots of people especially in the collectibles world that will go after the rarest version because it's the rarest version like the in, the invitational right. art is not good or cool or flattering to the magic player in question 
It is the art for the Core 21 is not my cup of tea either, but it is more advanced art overall. The 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 invention version doesn't really ring my bell just because I don't think it has much personality. But the overall aesthetic of the frame plus the art, I think, better represents premium. So if, so if, so if well, I was tabling a solemn, I would be tabling that one. There's also the argument to be made that Solemn Simulacrum is just not a good enough magic card for EDH anymore. Well, I went and I went and looked that up because I did not know if that was still true, but he is still a very popular creature as of this week. Well, he gets reprinted all the time in Commander products, so it's tough to disentangle that because anybody that's that's logging uh, a precon on EDH Rack or through one of the data sources they use, the Solemn's going to show up over and over and over again. Uh, I mean, that's true. And there have been many uh, copies they, of the card. I mean, are they still putting them? I, I didn't actually look if they're oh, still yeah. putting them in the pre-cons like they, they used are. to. But like, was he in the newest, was he in the recent ones? Well, keep in mind, we get them, we get two decks for every set now. And then five in the spring. So, well, I'll, so okay. the one, even if they're only putting them out once a year, there are still tons and tons of Solemns being logged in the data. Well, if I if you look at the top creatures for this week... He's like 14th behind basically a bunch of elves, uh, which were part of that elf commander that came out. Uh, so unless he, if he's in that deck or one of the other decks in that grouping, then clearly that could be part of what's going on there. But if he's not, then people are still putting him in all the decks they build. Whether or not Solemn is still good enough for EDH is a valid question. And that's why I went and looked at the creature. His his position on the creature seems to be solid. Um, I and I because I had the exact same thought. I can't say for certainty whether this whether Solemn is still a big part of EDH. I, I you know EDH rec is my source for that. I, I I don't really have a great way to gauge that otherwise um i would be curious to hear from people if if you feel that solemn is either has been phased out and you find yourself less in, interested in putting them in your decks or if he's still a major part of the format like i would have to imagine most white decks probably are still interested in solemn despite the fact that they're trying to make white better um so it is predicated on him still being a useful card in the format uh, I agree that again that the art is is uh, I I don't love it. It could be a lot better. Um, if I was going to table a Solemn Simulacrum, I would be a toss up between the Time Spiral, Old Border Foil because I do like those, but the art on that is like you said pretty bad. And the M twenty one Borderless is pretty cool. And given that it's five dollars and God knows what other prices, I would probably go the M twenty one one. But again. The inventions one being the inventions one and being old and rare and you know that's that's good enough lately. Um, if they keep printing these ridiculous versions of him, as you know, we talked about this before, is like how many times can you do this to a card before it loses its ability to maintain high price tags on the various versions? Is a good question, and Solemn may be one of the cards that tests that limit. I, uh, at the moment, I don't think we're there. Yeah, I mean, it's been twenty minutes dancing around this, but the point I'm trying to make is I'm much more bullish than most people, and far less scared when they put multiple premium versions of a good card out. All I care about is, is the new version super rare or not? Because if it's not rare, then that particular version is isn't as interesting to me because it's going to take so long to accelerate up the curve. But if it is yeah. rare. I don't care if there's seven other premium versions because they're probably old and hard to find too. 
and I don't think they're going to interact with one another very much. Um, so you, my last point, though, I, I, I will make is you've got a copy listed at 109, but you're calling this to go to 70 to 175. Why, why not list at 175 if you think it's going to get there? It's a good question. One may ask themselves if I knew I had a copy listed on TCG Player. <laughs> it is a great question, but it, we'll never know the answer. The funny to thing that. is, I totally believe that you didn't. The yeah. I, <laughs> anyway, you might want to reprice that. The uh, yeah. I, I don't think should. I buy the seventy to one seventy five and six to twelve months on this, but a lot of stuff has moved real hard this year, so anything could happen. I think I would be if this was my pick. I would be saying seventy to say one thirty or something, and be looking to for an easy win because i think i mean it's up op- it's optimistic i'll give you that this is an optimistic number all right finally moving on to my second selection to fairy's protection i also have a theme yours is uh, inventions minus secret layer cards to fairy's protection out of the uh recently released uh, i think it was called uh ex- extra extra one. life 2020 which was released That's which was right. sold to us in october and recently not so long ago landed um on time more or less for once uh it's a super cute picture of teferi throwing his child in the air it is in relatively short supply on tcg player already this is in 30,000 edh rec decks 14 percent of all white decks run it Currently at forty bucks, it's going to go to seventy to eighty. I have zero doubt. It just needs some time. Give it six to twelve months. These are going to hollow out, and it doesn't matter if they reprint Teferi's protection again or not. Um, this version will still hollow out and be more pricey than the others. I would have guessed that this was the um, Black is Magic one, but I guess not. Nope. They, um, yeah, that card is very popular, like remarkably popular, and it would probably be in more decks if it was cheaper. Uh, but it's not, so it's not, but still a very good card, still popular. The art is very good, uh, despite some segments of the magic community not caring for it. Um, just glancing at the other versions here. I see the judge copies at 75. Yeah. I mean, with the judge copy at 75 already, these other ones at 40, the the secret because the secret layer one is foil yep. right yeah i yeah i like this up to you know 70 or 80 dollars just as the other foil version um and the it's not even like the the art on the secret layer one is is good the composition is great um and it's not even like the judge one is particularly compelling the judge one's fine. Well, it's the same art it's the original art just in foil for the first time Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. It's it's the same art as on all the other versions, so it's not like it's stellar. All right, so maybe as we'll wrap both of the rest of yours off here. You're saying Static Orb and Noxious Gear Hulk are bottom of the barrel inventions that you also expect to pump and, and are, sell out. Are you hurrying the show along? <laughs> you you're you're trying to get through it quickly. This it's all freaky Friday over with here. With strong themes, it's all pretty much the same discussion, right? We're, we're just saying we're just yes, saying inventions and, are going to drain. Yes, I like the inventions across the board for the most part. Static Orb is not in a lot of decks, four thousand, but I listed a couple of these that I dug out of my booster box, my my bulk this week, and they like all sold, and I was kind of shocked. And the cheapest copies of these, there are two printings, the Tempest and Seventh Edition. They're twenty bucks already, and that's just for like. The, the basic version of this card. Um, so if you're getting the Kaladesh Invention for 80-ish, um, I think that's pretty good. 
the there's like 10 vendors total here. So if you're getting these 80, I'm thinking like 130 to 150. And the Noxious Gearhawks in 10,000 decks. Um, oh, I think I hit my mic there. He's in 10,000 decks. There's only 10 vendors who have these uh, Noxious Gearhawk conventions in stock. Um, you can buy them at 55 bucks right now, uh, and you'll probably get these for 90 to 100. There's no other good printings. Um, so a, a relatively popular card with actually the lowest supply of any of these we talked about. The curves are so tight on these that even though these are not super high demand cards, they're both going to get there. They're all going to get there. The, the Masterpiece series has just been a speculation win <laughs> from start to finish. It's gone through mul- mul- multiple waves of spike pumps, followed by retraces, but every time there's less inventory to backfill the market. And now during this COVID era, in the absence of uh, buy list, uh, easy buy listing, plus all the other factors we've talked about, it's all it's all going the way of the dinosaur. Well, and that's I mean that's basically the where I stand with all these picks is like it doesn't matter if they're the best version of the card. It doesn't matter if they're terribly popular. Um, just all of these premium versions have been under a lot of pressure, and you know we're seeing a lot of this stuff come due. So I think you'll you'll probably be happy with these across the board. And, and if and even if it was just whales looking to complete sets of these on the go forward, and there was only 3,000 of those people per year? Forget it. It's not even, it doesn't even need to be 3,000. Even if there was 30 of those people per year, that would keep <laughs> keep fresh plateaus in play. I mean, there's only... For Noxious Gearhulk, there's... 2, 3, 4, 5... Like 14 or 15 copies near Mint left on TCG Player. So you don't need 300 or 3,000 of those people. You just need a very small amount. Yeah, like five people deciding to buy an uh, invention masterpiece. An invention Noxious Gearhawk basically cleans out the inventory. Yep. And uh, you were finishing up with the secret layers, right? You had some more that you wanted I have to... a non foil, which is always an exciting event for me. Uh, mm-hmm. Non foil Swamp 119. This is the Seb McKinnon uh, art out of the Secret Layer Drop series Secret Versary Super Drop. Uh, there are 19 listings currently on TCG Player. I suspect that there is still some inventory filtering out there across the globe that uh, might push the inventory level higher before it later recedes. But you can pick these up just under, in and around $10, somewhere between $9 and $11 total. Um, inventory is not super deep. This, The art on this swamp is fantastic. It's Seth McKinnon art. That's enough. And it's one of those situations where, like, with colony rats or persistent petitioners or whatever, people are not going to want five of these swamps. They're going to want 10, 20, 30, 40 of these swamps for cube or EDH decks or whatever. And I guarantee you, this swamp is going to be over $25 in a year. Yeah. I, you know, basic lands are one of those things that I have trouble with sometimes um, just by virtue of, you know, there's been so many choices type of thing. But the nice thing about a card like this is that that doesn't really matter because even if you you can even though there are a lot of other choices for people to go with, the guy who wants this one has to buy so many that he he makes up demand the demand of several people at once. Um, and you know if the art's really good, if it is something people are interested in, then that's even better. And I'm, like CK doesn't have any of them up for sale yet. They also don't have them on buy list, as far as I can tell. But I, I would imagine that these will, vendors that get their hands on these will sell through them pretty quickly. And so that they, they will have strong buy list support over time. Yeah. Um, okay. 
That's a that's a solid one. If you can, especially if you can get these in bulk, that would be really great. Well, there's like some listings on TCG where people have eight copies. You know, the gaming company, which often has hundreds of copies of things, only has nine copies listed. So obviously, they didn't go super deep uh, on this stuff yet, or at least they haven't posted it. I think the biggest one is somebody at thirteen dollars has thirty copies. Seems fine to me. Put snap those off. Put them in a box. Forget about them for a year and check back in. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Yeah. And and the thing about the reason I went non foil over foil here is that the non the foils don't have a. Uh, I I think that foil basic lands are harder if they are prone to curling as the secret layers tend to be, because then your lands are super obvious, but the rest of your deck maybe not maybe isn't unless the whole thing's foiled out. So see no reason not to go for the non-foils and uh, lean into the people that are trying to avoid clamshells. Yeah, and I mean, it's worth pointing out that we have found, I mean, our our ROI wrap-up earlier this year, or uh, you know, late last year or whatever, showed that some of our non-foil picks were some of the best of the bunch. Um, so there's definitely, you can still definitely move non-foil cards uh, for sure. I mean, Often that's because they're so much lower than the foils in question. Like if you have a $2.50 rare versus a $6 foil or something, then the 6 to 24 being four times is a lot harder than the $1.50 to 15 being 10 times. In this case, the non-foils are only a few bucks cheaper than the foils. I think foils are about the same amount of inventory listed, which suggests that roughly equal amounts of the two versions of the set were sold. And they are more or less the same price. And I think if you can get non-foils for the same price as foils, there's an argument to be made that maybe foils are have more upside. But I, I would I if I'm gonna put some money into this, I'm gonna try the non-foil land route to see if it's easier to sell just because secret layers are known to be pretty heavily curled. Yeah, I mean, the nice thing is you can just split the difference and do, do some of both if you want to. Just one way, yeah. half a dozen the other. And, and I know that you're going to be upset about it either way. Right. I don't disagree. All righty. So that wraps up uh, Cards to Watch for our, our final topic of the week. You wanted to dip back in on the Universes Beyond concept and, and levy some comments, I understand. Well, you say dip back in. I mean, this we didn't cover yeah, this, we did. right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. We, we talked about. We said that we were going to do a more expansive thing later, but we did touch on it the week it was announced. We, yeah, we we made acknowledgement of it. Um, so, as to to reiterate, uh, for anyone who forgot, Wizards announced this Universes Beyond program um, in 2022. We're going to see a Warhammer Forty Thousand and Lord of the Rings products. Uh, Warhammer is going to be a series of commander decks and Lord of the Rings is going to be its own standalone set. And they didn't explicitly say, but I, I think we can assume it's going to look something like Conspiracy or Battlebond, like that type of product, right? Well, probably um, fills the same slot as the summer D&D set this year. Uh, so they Well, they're not standard legal. So they wouldn't take that set because th- this summer's D set is standard legal right well we don't get corsets like, anymore so they can choose to make summer sets non-standard legal uh oh well they could i mean i i am continuing to operate on the assumption that they're doing four standard legal expansion sets sure. here right 
So this year's D&D one, the core set's gone, the D&D set replaced it, but it is still standard legal. Those cards will be playable in official Magic Correct. Lines. The Lord of the Rings set will not be. They said it is not a standard legal yep. set. Uh, so it, it's like the same product as positioning as Conspiracy or Battle Bond. Uh, sure. So, so it could be a, couple... a June release versus a later standard legal set in August or whatever. Right. Or July. Right, right, right. Late July, usually. Yeah. I mean, the, t- the timing is, you know, whatever. It's, it's going to be somewhere 2022. My point was just that it's a, it's a full... When I say it's along the lines of Conspiracy or Battle Bond, I just mean like that size set, probably roughly that product formulation, um, but not standard legal, you know, that type of thing. Um, what I find... One of the first things that that, ca- that catches me here is that this opens the door to a lot of product tie-ins. Um, you know, they dip their toes in with Walking Dead, but with Lord of the Rings and Warhammer coming in, I mean, there there's a there's a there's a lot of marketing there on the horizon that we've only just scratched the surface of. Um, and I mean, really, like the idea of an honest to god like Avengers magic set is absolutely on the table at this point. So my assumption here is that the end goal of this program is definitely the Disney brands. Because aside from Pokemon, that's pretty much the biggest thing you can do uh, is make Star Wars magic and Marvel magic. Yeah. Um, neither of which have super strong uh, card game properties right now. So seems feasible in a way that Pokemon would never be. Like with Pokemon being... A, the biggest entertainment brand of all time, B, ostensibly a competitor, uh, and C, you know, having an ongoing version of their own game that was taken away from Wizards 20 years ago. Zero chance there will ever be Pokemon Magic crossover. That just seems very, very unlikely. They just don't need Magic. Like, they don't need Wizards or Hasbro in any way. Uh, they're already the biggest. So... And Disney doesn't really need them either, but there are mid-level managers responsible for branding opportunities, licensing their products in a zillion different directions. And the nice thing here is that Hasbro has repeatedly won the contracts to handle the toys for Star Wars and Marvel. That's been going on for many, many, many years. And San Diego Comic-Con exclusives tend to be Hasbro-made Star Wars and Marvel product, so it's not a huge stretch at all for them to eventually make magic sets for those brands. And I suspect the way that they will do that is they will get some of these other properties out the door, like Warhammer and like Lord of the Rings, and then they'll approach their contacts at Disney and be like, you know, we did this to show you what was possible and and to provide proof of concept, and obviously you're our end game here, so let's talk. Yeah. End game. Um... Yeah, I mean, I agree completely. They're they're definitely shooting for the Disney pro- products. The the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I think, is first and foremost in a lot of people's minds. Star Wars too, for sure. But at the moment, you know, especially with stuff like WandaVision and what have you. Uh, but oh man, I should not have mentioned that because now I just want to yell about WandaVision. Um, that show, by the way, started fine, worse <laughs> with every single episode. By the time I got to the last episode, I was in physical pain. But Anyways, uh, yeah, like, I mean, and clearly Disney doesn't doesn't need magic, but like 
you know, there's Avengers everything. So why can't there be like Marvel phase four characters? Um, magic set seems very viable, especially, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the first essentially generation had all recognizable characters. Everyone knows Captain America and Iron Man and those guys. You know, this second generation with like Winter Soldier and Falcon and Wanda and Doctor Strange. Like if you're a nerd, you know those characters, but like your mom doesn't know who any of those people are. So just every additional venue to try and like saturate those characters out in the world is desirable for them. Um, It's also, you know, obviously opens the door to lots of to kind of wizards like stepping down to other brands you know, like Rick and Morty or Steven Universe or God, like a full, um, whatchamacallit, like a, a commander deck of My Little Pony or um, Roblox. League of Legends, like video games are probably going to be a strong venue for them, possibly in the future, because video games don't have paper card games aren't you know really set up for that but their audiences are inclined already inclined towards that because they're already playing games likely that are you know similar a similar audience you know how many league players does wizards think they might be able to capture if they make a league of legends magic set you've already got people who are into this type of stuff might be a good hook there if i recall correctly there was a warcraft card game a ways back that that was meant to expand the reach of that brand. And that one's trickier because when you're trying to build your own uh, gaming community with overlap with your existing community through tabletop instead of on the screen, you have to then support that community. One of the nice things about partnering with Wizards on an established you know, tier two TCG like Magic is that you can be confident that the product is not going to become obsolete while on the shelves. Mm-hmm. And we talked about when we talked about this last time, I talked about how it's really nice that, uh, and we talked about this with Caffrey a little bit, but how nice it is that the, uh, the Warhammer stuff will be on, you know, you're going to have Magic product on the shelves in Games Workshop stores, which has never existed before because the official Games Workshop stores only carry their own product. And a few like third-party accessories and paints and whatever, but to to put Wizards product in those stores exposes all the people that go in and out of those stores, and that's a big network to Magic, and potentially captures them. And there might be some overlap. To me, it's a little weird because Warhammer like <laughs> there's some very toxic elements of their lore that are not something I would be pursuing if it was me. But they're probably just going by the numbers in terms of, you know, what has a big enough fan base that we can get a deal done with. And, you know, I, yeah, right. I know Warhammer has some real weird stuff buried in there. Um, I would imagine, get, I guess this is a humongous benefit of the doubt that um, Games Workshop has mostly tailored, you know, cut those elements out over the last several Not really. years. So that, I mean, really? So, like, even modern stuff is... The, I mean, the, the kind of, like, the fundamental lore with 40K is there's all these different races. 
hyper advanced civilizations in the future and none of them are the good guys right like they're mm-hmm. all twisted or warped or corrupted or selfish in some way and i don't consider it super problematic on the whole but it's definitely not a close cousin to the magic narrative well no which is I mean, which is, very, which is very much like be the best person you can be be a planeswalker and do good things and go save the world over and over again in the model of the avengers yeah yeah i i mean i can appreciate that like magic sets always have good guys warhammer has no good guys it's just various flavors of bad guys i i get that i mean you can soften the edges in a magic set a little bit when you say problematic elements i'm thinking that you're talking about like i i don't even want like like sexual assault well but there, there's whole there's whole tribes that are based on like sadomasochism and 40k but and are they still but are, like yeah, are they, they still, still oh, yeah, they still the publish they're not scared of that because that's a, their target market is like 30 what and 40 year old men yeah uh okay so i mean that's uh, so that's that's kind of gross uh lord of the rings will be they're gonna have to take some artistic liberties because there's no one there's two speaking females in the entire book all three books so like they're gonna have to stretch it there so i mean that's a little cleaner. <laughs> I, I thought a little bit about what what why i have like a lukewarm reception to the the lord of the rings thing and i realized that what it is is that there's very little surprise value like Lord of the Rings is a known quantity. So if you're a huge Lord of the Rings fan, you'll welcome any and all opportunities. You bought a mug, you got the t-shirt, you're going to get the magic sets, cool. But one of the things I like about new magic sets is what what surprising, interesting narrative crafting have they done? What cool creature did somebody design top down or from art outward that, you know, sparks some creative flair within me that makes me want to build a deck around it or whatever. I'm not going to be excited to see Legolas, Gimli, Aragorn, whatever. I, I've spent lots of times with the time with those characters over the years. I, I don't have much excitement left for them. I don't consider my, you know, I, I like and respect Lord of the Rings kind of thing. I'll go back and watch a couple more times. I'm sure before I die, but I, I'm not dying to like table Gimli and swing with his axe. No. And I, I this is a very good point um, that you're making. I, I think you're, to, you're, you're right on the money. I, I read all the Lord of the Rings books. I watched all the movies. I enjoyed it. I, I get it. <laughs> like, like I, 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 I don't know. It was fun. That's fine. I, I don't crave more of it. And that, and I understand other people are more into Lord of the Rings than I am. Um, but you're absolutely right. Is it's just, it's going to feel like somebody's homebrew sat who are like, oh, you don't want to be cool if Lord of the Rings is in magic and they go home and they make these cards. And it's just like, okay, yeah, this is someone who did this on like MTG Salvation. Yep. Okay. I got it. Uh, but, it but, the, but I fully admit that everybody will feel differently. And for instance, I'm much more excited about Star Wars. Not because I'm such a huge Star Wars fan or anything. I've just been interested in seeing Star Wars magic cards done right. For a while, I can't really put my finger on exactly why I feel differently about that than I do about Lord of the Rings, because I also like I also am looking forward to the D and D set. That's that's cool because I'm been dungeon being a dungeon master for the last four years, so I'm probably a little closer to that brand. And so they're doing the right thing, giving 
you know, they're going to hit, there's going to be overlapping Venn diagrams of fan bases. Some of these are going to hit home better than others for all of us. And it doesn't matter because even if only 30% or 40% of magic players buy into them, the missing magic players that ignore them will be made up for by, in theory, the fans of the property in question that are just super excited to have some new game version of their favorite property to fool around with. I mean, I guess when it comes to Star Wars, the boundaries of that property are not defined. Like Lord of the Rings, I feel like you can draw a very clear box around yeah. it. Like the, like these are the characters, this is the story, this is what happened, done. Star Wars, they're just, you know, they're pr- producing new content. Like they can just add in characters off in some ancillary component and have it all be new and fresh um, and tie it in the, the season four of The Mandalorian or whatever. Um, that's all viable. Uh, by the way, I, when we were talking about tying it into video games, I was just in, like putting putting product in Warhammer stores that wasn't there before. Like, okay, well, what if every time you logged into League of Legends, the launcher showed you the new League of Legends magic set that you can buy? Like, here you go. You can have shipped to your door the League of Legends magic set for like, you know, 800 Riot coins. Yeah. Right, and it's right there. When you're not like, how much would how much would Wizards love to advertise a magic set in <laughs> League of Legends launcher? Oh yeah, all right, like a lot of viability so there. So it's it's, a, it's automatically a lot more exposure than the fake exposure they build for themselves on Twitch. So <laughs> right, and but but and I guess okay. So your point about not being excited because like you you know the product and you know the story, you're familiar with it. It doesn't have anything new bleeds into i think what is ultimately what really gets to me about this and i'm going to start with the start this with a uh, a brief anecdote was i had a friend when we were back in college who was really into the killers and uh he, i remember a conversation we had that the killers had won some award or something and he was talking to me about them and he said they were credited with expanding the soundscape and I still remember that turn of phrase, oh God, 15 years later. Credited with expanding the soundscape. That within the, the world of radio play, the Killers album had expanded the type of music you could hear out there. Um, and it was something that was, was really remarkable at the time. You could, I don't care if this is right or wrong. I just remember the concept of it. Because it was an interesting concept. When I turn that concept here to magic, introducing these external brands is reducing the cultural landscape. It is a constriction of the culture and the entertainment media we have. It is the application of the Ready Player One concept to magic. It is regurgitation of things you've already seen without the excitement or innovation of something new. It's just a, a call to nostalgia. And it, it ultimately it shrinks our culture. Like I don't like Avengers can exist in the comics and on the movies, but when you start adding them everywhere, it's taking up air in the room for other new things and magic has gotten to be its own story its own world its own characters for 29 years um and some of it has been good some of it has not been good but it's always been its own identity and while they've clearly been unable to get like the brand to stand on its own 
you know, shoulder to shoulder with like major products, major brands like Pokemon or Marvel or, or what have you, it's still gotten to be its own thing, sort of like a tier two. And I, you know, they're going to keep making their own sets, but it feels like we are all being done a disservice because we are giving up our, you know, Wizards is giving up its property essentially to bring in stuff that we've already seen, we already know, we already hear about, we already get elsewhere. And it, it, it feels in a similar way, the same way that Disney now just owns everything. Like, there's a stifling of creativity and excitement when one company owns every major media property and media channel and it's coming to magic. And I don't like it. I liked that magic got to be its own thing. And I think it's going to be bad for the game in the very long run. I don't I don't trust that this is going to do a, a great job bringing in tons of new blood to the game. Uh, I, I, I don't believe it. I think people who are super into Lord of the Rings and don't play magic probably like maybe they'll buy some Lord of the Ring cards, but like they're not going to all suddenly become major magic players. Just like people who are into Avengers, like might buy some singles, like maybe people who are Final Fantasy fans bought the Amano Liliana, but they're not going to go buy. They're not going to be suddenly become major magic fans because there's an Avengers magic set. So it just seems like you're really cheapening the brand and kind of selling out uh, for very little. And it hurts the brand in the very long term, not, three years from now, but like 20 years from now. If, see, Transformers did a thing where they did a Marvel Transformers crossover like 10 years ago. And for Transformers fans, it was largely considered a disaster because like the toy concepts just made no sense from an adult perspective. For kids, they were awesome. It was like a Spider-Man plane that turns into Spider-Man. Both modes not super great because <laughs> it's hard to turn from Spider-Man into a plane and have I, both versions look good. They did the same thing with Star Wars, also more or less a disaster, and the the toys stayed really cheap for a long time. But is if you do that all the time, if that's all your brand does, then it ends up like Monopoly. You are basically just licensed, and yeah. you you lose sight of whatever makes you unique. Now, I will argue that Magic hasn't been a unique uh, entertainment property for a long time because probably about a decade ago, they started really trying to ride the zeitgeist wave 18 months late on a regular basis. Like, I maintain that Innistrad exists because of Twilight and that the War of the Spark timeline exists because of Avengers and so forth. Um, that... You know, the, the Gatewatch is absolutely the Avengers and that they're going to keep doing that kind of thing. And so this does further uh, muddy the purity of any attempt to carve out a unique identity for the brand. But I would argue that they haven't shown much. You know, it's been almost 30 years. They've already basically dropped the ball on that the entire time. Got some books, got some comics along the way, mostly bad. Although, looking back at the art style in the original comics, there's actually it's pretty cool. <laughs> the covers for the Ice Age series are a lot more interesting than you would imagine. Um, mm. But since then, no movies, no no, and no cartoon. Like, no cartoon is just bonkers to me for Magic. If Magic had come out in the 80s instead of the 90s, 1,000% there would have been a Saturday morning cartoon. Like, Zero doubt in my mind. 
absolutely there would have been a cartoon. And the fact that, you know, they've got had this Chandra thing in the works, supposedly by the Avengers producers, and there's just been no news since then, and there's been a script that was kicked around Hollywood for a while for a movie that never went anywhere. They don't seem to be very successful getting Hollywood to take this brand seriously. And when we eventually get it, it's probably going to be pretty, pretty bad. Like, the... You, you know, hope for the best, but be prepared for the worst. Because think about like something like Avatar, where writers for the cartoon show of Avatar put a lot of effort into making one of the best cartoon series of all time. Movie version? <laughs> one of the worst movies you could possibly subject yourself to. And that yeah. production crew for sure had access to the right people, if they wanted it, to get it right. To nail the tone to do its service, to please the fans, to set up a franchise. And yet again and again and again, Hollywood looks at these like uh, swords and sorcery sci-fi brands as throwaways, like that they're just going to milk the fan base once and then, and then ignore it for years and years. And it's funny to me because this trend line started way back in the like 80s and 90s where superheroes were largely considered to be fringe properties for TV and movies with a few, just a few smattering notable successes. There was like a Hulk show in the 80s, Wonder Woman in the late 70s, um, you know, the Batman movie in 1990 with uh, Nicholson was a big deal. And slowly, it took a long time for them to realize that this was actually mainstream material that they were not respecting. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't until like the first X-Men movie, I think, in 2003, that like... It had any staying power at all. You get to the, you get to the point where Disney buys Marvel, and the the cultural the dynastic cultural properties of that universe are then entrenched. Like Alara's grandchildren will be subjected to Marvel movies. I guarantee you, they'll just be in in like virtual reality. But Magic has never had a strong cultural stamp outside of our own community because they have not done a good job of pushing, of exporting the culture to the mainstream. And I don't think that these licensing deals are going to do any better of a job of that. They do risk diluting the brand, but only if they are done in great quantity. If they do like one or two projects a year and it's, you know, two products out of 45 that they put into the global market... I don't think it really makes any difference at all. And I don't believe that Warhammer fans are going to flock to magic with a vengeance. But if they even pull in a few thousand, you know, if, if you make the product and it sells well enough that you make money and you pull in a few thousand extra fans, you've done a good job. Because cause you, cause well, you tapped into a Venn diagram, even if the overlap was minor, that you simply had no access to before. I, I would be really curious to know how many people are into Warhammer and don't <laughs> are are primed to be pulled into magic like how many of those guys haven't already tried it played it had an opinion whether or not they liked it it's it's an it's an interesting question it. because i'm i paint miniatures for dnd i have considered buying some warhammer pieces because they're such amazing sculpts um for use in dnd I have even gone so far as to watch uh, Warhammer strategy, like watch people play Warhammer on YouTube, a couple of games, 
then I got bored. But I'm close. Like, if you made a magic-themed Warhammer set, you might be able to pull me in if some magic player I knew said they wanted to play and COVID was over. So I, I can I, sort of picture how this happens. Like, keep in mind, I didn't play D&D for 20 years, and they pulled me into that. So it's possible. I, I mean, it's not that it can't happen. Um, I have also flirted with the idea of playing Warhammer, despite never having gotten into it. I was turned off by it because, for me, the problem was the, the worst part about Warhammer was the people that played it. Right. Like I saw the stores. I saw the people that played it. I saw the, the culture around it. And I just wasn't interested. And even though the game seemed kind of interesting, um, you know, it was something that like either I'm going to do this with my friends or I'm not going to do it. And what, you know, the prohibitive costs really put a, a damper on it. If my buddies all decided tomorrow to start playing, I would buy in. But the magic set's not going to change that, right? Like I am, like Warhammer's so close to magic. It seems like everyone who plays one and not the other knows about the other one, may have looked at it, considered it. There are other barriers to them playing. Um, and it's not that they needed to to have their world printed in a different version. Uh Possibly. Right. Like, like putting magic characters in any video game will not get me to go play that video game. And I, you could put Jace, you could put Jace in literally every video game on the Steam workshop. People who are into magic are not going to go play those games because Jace is there. Um, I, you know, pulling back to some of the other stuff, like, I, so you're absolutely right. Magic has sort of been cribbing from larger cultural movements over the last five-ish, 10 years in a way that they didn't quite do early on, which is kind of unfortunate, but at least it had its own identity still, right? Like Innistrad was like the whole, you know, the, the Twilight-ish type of thing, but like it got to be its own property, which which still made it dynamic and interesting and in, in, in novel, and it was still magic. Um, and I, I think that there is a s- severe distinction between that and just like a literal Twilight set. Uh, Strixhaven, granted we know nothing other than the name of it, feels like that is probably the closest, already feels like the closest they've come to like blurring that line to, we don't own the license, but we're giving you something that's basically We do know more than the name. They've released multiple cards for the set. Oh, that's right. Those cards they spoiled were from Strixhaven. I'm sorry, I was thinking they were a different set. I don't know which set I thought they were from, but we do know a couple of them. Um, it, yes, it is unfortunate that a little bit that Wizards has has pulled from other cultural movements like that, but I still think that there's a distinction there. And yeah, I, I, and as for the ability for them to stand the, the brand up on its own, I, I, I don't I don't know why. Right, that's not that's not my. If 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 you have an answer to why Wizards hasn't been able to get Magic to take in the way that these other brands have, um, there's a half a million dollar a year salary. Well, I, for you. I mean. <laughs> They, they can't afford the people that will give them the answer because they don't want to hear the answer. The answer is you got to spend yeah. a lot more money. It's it's that simple. They yeah. Wizards is notoriously cheap. They're based in Rhode Island. They're not really a West Coast company. They they have no digital DNA. They have no media DNA. They they are largely a logistics distribution licensing firm. And. You know, they're notorious for underpaying their technical staff. They people they brought tried to bring in from the gaming industry, I'm sure those negotiations were kind of difficult because some of the people that they probably would love to have brought in 
were not going to be available at the price they wanted to pay because they used those East Coast pay scales. And it really just comes down to money. Like if they had thrown millions of dollars at entertainment properties for the brand, then they would be much further ahead than they are now. Yeah. It, which ties into the why won't you pay? Why won't you put you know five hundred grand on the salary to hire a couple people to test some formats for you? Um, that we were talking about earlier, uh, you know, and and one of the the, the refrains that I kept seeing uh, uh, when all of this was announced was like, oh, you, it's just not for you. This isn't for you. You know, that's it's okay that you don't want the Lord of the Rings set. This product isn't for you, but. It, that seems to forget about the fact that, like, just because it's not for me, it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist within the bounds of this product, which is for me. And, like, the fact that it exists does have an impact on the greater whole. In the same way that, like, EDH cards printed into standard sets aren't for the competitive grinder, but they still have an impact on existing there. Like, the fact that they're there does have an impact on that guy that only plays standard. They take up slots in the set. They change what, you know, cards are available to be played because sometimes they're relevant. Um, they, you know, they impact draft in draft environments. There's, there's extra components to this. And like, just because something's not for me, it doesn't mean that I have to think that it's good for the product itself. You could print some really questionable crossover products with magic and then go, oh, well, that's not for you. Don't worry about it. But I might be like, hey, maybe I don't want a Prager University sponsored magic set. Like, that's a problem, right? Like, this set isn't for me, but it's a real problem that it exists within magic. Um, or, you know, any of these other brands that are problematic for a variety of reasons. I just, I, 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 that argument can't do all of this work. And you have to appreciate that when you start change, you know, doing this type of stuff, it sort of cheapens the brand. It, it loses its identity. It loses its cult, what cultural cachet it does have um, because of that. And you have to respect that. Like it's, it's okay for things to be themselves and distinct. I feel you. Really rank, I feel you. Really rustles my jimmies, James. <laughs> All right. We can probably wrap, call that a wrap for the week. Where can people find you online, Travis? I am on Twitter at WizardBumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. Uh, I feel like this week more than others, people are going to want to tweet at me. So go for it. I can't promise I'll respond, but... You guys can find me on Twitter at mdgcritic, as well as via my occasional articles on mdgprice.com and my constant haunting of the ProTrader community. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mdgprice.com ProTrader service for just $7.99 a month or $79.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money. Lots of money. Play Magic Gathering. Yeah, I actually can admit to, uh, you know, Oko tweeted about all those cards that he bought. The, what was it? The Commander Legends sealed product mm-hmm. or something like that. As something that was like half price of TCG. And I was like, uh, <laughs> wish I had been paying attention. Um, once again, MTG Fast Finance is probably sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support our podcast, which brings us to the end of episode 263. 
Um, a fun one as always. Uh, hopefully next week we have a guest lined up. I'm not uh, not revealing any names at the moment, but hopefully that will is, come together. Is, is going and to be a spicy one. Yeah, if, uh, if that comes through, that might be... <laughs> Maybe the first cast within after hours. Uh, but I will see you next week. Thank you, Travis. We'll see you all next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. <laughs>